Shalom, I'm Yael Ziegler, and welcome to our new series on Megillat Echa. Today we will be beginning with an introduction of Megillat Echa. Um, Echa, of course, is one of the, what we call the Chamesh Megillot, the five Megillot. Um, it is important to note, especially because we've been dealing until now with Megillat Root, that um, the connection between the five Megillot seems to me to be purely liturgical. In other words, uh, we we group them together because they're all read in the Beit Knesset. Probably they were also printed together very early on so that people could take one volume of, of a book to the Beit Knesset with them. Um, and, and that's how they began to be associated one with the other. In all other ways, they're, they're not related. They're not from the same time period, so they're not historically related. They're not of the same literary genre. Some of them are written in prose. We have some books that are written in poetry. Uh, the book of Kohelet is generally considered to be wisdom literature. Um, and Echa, of course, is a lamentation over the Chorban. Um, Chazal tells us that this was written by Yirmiyahu. Of course, we know that Yirmiyahu lived during the Chorban, uh, and he wrote from the time of Yoshiahu, of the King Yoshiahu, until after the Chorban. Yirmiyahu is a contemporary of Yechezkel. He's a contemporary also of an earlier prophet, Sifanya. Um Now, the fact that, that the Misara tells us that Echa was written uh, by Yirmiyahu suggests that this is the culmination of perhaps both of Yirmiyahu's other books. Uh, the Misara tells us, the Gemara and Babatra tells us that Yirmiyahu wrote Sefer Melachim, um, in which he chronicles the cumulative events that lead to the Chorban. In fact, when we study Sefer Melachim, perhaps the most important piece of information to begin with is the fact that it's written as a backward glance, an attempt to try to explain the destruction of Yerushalayim. Um, and this book was written by Yirmiyahu, Sefer Melachim was written by Yirmiyahu in order to explain the events of the Chorban. That's a very important way to understand Sefer Melachim. Um, from the prophetic and perhaps theological perspective, we have Sefer Yirmiyahu, which is, of course, uh, Yirmiyahu's own prophecies that he said to the people. This book chronicles basically Yirmiyahu's failed attempts to reform the people, thereby preventing the destruction. So Echa, our very short Sefer, five prakim long, written in poetry, which is a lamentation over the destruction seems to be, to some extent, the culmination, certainly of Sefer Yirmiyahu. Sefer Yirmiyahu does also record events after the Chorban, um, and, and yet Sefer Yirmiyahu is leading us, most of the book is leading us towards the Chorban, so we could look at Megillat Echa as the uh, result of Sefer Yirmiyahu. Megillat Echa is Yirmiyahu's lamentation over his failed attempt to try to get the people to avoid the destruction. Um, however, it is interesting Interesting, first of all, that Echa gets its own book. In fact, Josephus only mentions 22 books of Tanakh. You know that we have 24 books. Uh, presumably, Josephus included, or Josephus seems to have included Echa with Yirmiyahu. We do not do that. Our, our Masorah has Echa as a separate book. Um, one of the reasons that I think this is is also is also an explanation for another 
anomaly. Certainly not That is the fact about Mitzcha, and that is that Yirmiyahu is never mentioned once in the Gever, who is mentioned in the first person in the third chapter, Aniha Gever, but by name Yirmiyahu is actually never mentioned. And it seems to me that the same reason that Yirmiyahu is not mentioned in Megillat Echa is the same reason that Megillat Echa is not part of Sefer Yirmiyahu, and that is that Megillat Echa is meant to be read as if it is written by every man, any man, the person on the street, not by a prophet, not by a critic of society, but by a member of society, a fellow sufferer. And this really leads us to the next point that I wanted to make, and that is that Eicha is not meant to be viewed um, within any real historical context. Uh, now, uh, certainly, Eicha's general theme is the fall, the destruction of Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is mentioned quite frequently. The Beit HaMikdash is certainly focused on at the beginning of Parak Bet. Um, and yet, there are no dates, there are no names, there are no historical events mentioned. The closest we get to a historical event is in Parak Dalad, or even to a name, is in Parak Dalad, where we have Ruach Hashem and there's a controversy there among the Mefarshim as to who is being referred to as this Mashiach Hashem, the anointed of God. Well, we'll talk about that when we get there, but I think what, we're, what, what I'd like to say about Echa in terms of its absence of dates and names and historical events is that Echa is not about one single tragic event in Jewish history. Rather, it's about suffering. It's about suffering within a theological context, suffering which spans generations, suffering which has affected both individual Jews and the national entity of Am Yisrael everywhere in many different points in, in history, regardless of their geographical location, regardless of their societal status, regardless of the period in which we're discussing. Uh, in order to properly understand Megillat Echa, we absolutely must understand the historical time frame in which it's written. I would say that there are several important historical events in the background of the time period in which Echa is written and takes place, which we must understand in order to properly read Megillat Echa. And that's really what I'd like to do today. As an introduction to Megillat Echa, I'd like to discuss some of the Tanakh uh, Prakim, some of the different chapters in Tanakh, which give us an important background for understanding Megillat Echa. The first story that I'd like to refer to, and it will become clear throughout the series why these different stories are important. I'll, I'll try to explain a little bit of, of it today, but this is all meant to be seen as background for our forthcoming study. Um, the first story that I'd like to refer to is the story of Chizkiyahu HaMelech, King Chizkiyahu, who was the ruler of Yehuda during the time that Sancharib, the king of Ashur, the king of Assyria, marched against Israel's um, southern kingdom, also uh, uh during the time that Israel's northern kingdom was uh, was sent into exile. The story of Chizkiyahu and his attempt to withstand the, um, the Assyrian troops is an extremely important story. One of the reasons that I know that it's an important story is because it appears in three different places in Tanakh. The first place that it appears is in Malachim Bet Perak Yudchet. The second place where it appears is in Yeshayahu, in Prakim Lamed Vav and Lamed Zayin, chapters 36 and 37, and the third place that it appears is in Divrei Ayamim Bet, Perak Lamed Bet. And the story itself um, has to also be complemented with with uh, Sancharib's own records. Sancharib records that he took 46 Judean cities. 
He also boasts that he sent his army to Jerusalem, where he shut up Chizkiyahu like a bird in a cage. He never, in fact, boasts that he that he conquered the holy city. And the answer as to why he didn't make this boast is because, quite simply put, he did not conquer the holy city. Now, he did almost conquer the holy city, and that's the story of um, of Chizkiah Amech that appears throughout Tanakh. In fact, the story itself is really quite interesting, goes into a tremendous amount of detail. Chizkiah is, of course, surrounded, or Yerushalayim is surrounded by 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, Assyrian troops, and Chizkiah, who is in a great fear and great panic, but of course being a good king, he sends a message to Yeshayahu, he engages in tefillah, and all of this is to some avail because in fact what we are told in Malachim Bet, Perak Yudtet, Pasuk Lamed Hay, at the very end of the story in chapter 19, verse 35, hu, and it was that night, Hashem, and the angel of God went out, Ashur, and he struck the camp of Ashur, Meashmonim Vachamisha Aleph, 185,000 troops, and they got up in the morning, and everyone was dead. Now, of course, this is a tremendous blow for the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army has simply marched throughout the ancient Near East, conquering everything, vanquishing everything that's in its path. And this was an incredible uh, loss. It was seen as a great miracle. In fact, it seems to have uh, echoed so strongly um, that it, we even seem to have an allusion to this story in our first historical source, our first real external historical source, and that is, of course, Herodotus is the history. Herodotus is the father of history. Uh, he writes writes his, his book in the 5th century BCE, uh, and he has somewhat of a garbled account of this disaster that crippled the Assyrian forces. He records a little bit differently. He talks about Sancharib marching against Egypt, and uh, during uh, one night, the field mice uh, invade the Assyrian camp and uh, gnaw the, all of the weapons and disarm the military force. Uh, as a consequence, many of the soldiers were killed and others fled. Um, many Many professors, many scholars believe that this account of Herodotus is a garbled account of the, the story that we have in the Tanakh, which suggests that it was such a significant story that it is maintained for several hundred years and reemerges, admittedly, in a slightly confused account in Herodotus's uh, book of history. Um, indeed, and, and, uh, I believe actually that Sancharib actually never marches against Egypt, so right away we have a sense that Herodotus is telling a story which actually, uh, is confused on some level. Um, there is no evidence, in fact, that Sancharib ever returns to, um, to the area of Yerushalayim. And there is a sense, I think, that this is an extraordinary miracle, that there's simply no way that this could have happened. The tremendous formidable Assyrian army simply um, dying in, in one fell swoop and, and really never again being able to return to once again try to conquer Yerushalayim. Simply the reverberations of this miracle
miracle have tremendous, tremendous consequence, tremendous repercussions. Uh, Yerushalayim becomes almost mythology, mythological. It almost becomes this um, inviolate city, the city that is is under God's special protection and therefore is not vulnerable to attack. Uh, there are many, many expressions of this attitude towards Yerushalayim in uh, both in later Nevi'im and I would even venture to say perhaps in a Mizmor Tehilim, one that we say every Monday morning. It's Mizmor Tehilim Memchet. While it is of course not certain that Mizmor Memchet is actually referring to our story, there are some very interesting um, ideas that appear in Mizmor Memchet. It is of course a Mizmor which praises Yerushalayim. It praises Yerushalayim for being the special protectorate of God. Elohim be'arminoteha nodala miskav. God in her palaces has become known as a safe haven. And then it describes this very interesting scenario in which the kings gather together and walk through Yerushalayim in order to see the greatness of Yerushalayim. Ki ne'amilachim no'adu avru yachdav. The kings get together and they pass through Yerushalayim. And what is the response to Yerushalayim? Hema ra'u ken tamahu Nivhalu nechpazu raada achazatam sham chil kayoleda beruach kadim teshaber oniot tarshish. They go through. They're amazed. They're panicked. They're frightened. A trembling seizes them there, like a woman in the throes of labor, like an easterly wind breaks the boats of tarshish. That is how they respond when they see Yerushalayim. And then actually they speak. They say kasher shamanu ken ra'inu, just like we heard. So we have seen beir Hashem tzvaot beir. Elokeinu, in the city of God, in the city of our God, Elokim Yechoneneha Ad Olam Sela, God shall establish this uh, city forever. Now, um, if in fact this is a description that is describing the events of Chizkiyahu Melech, which certainly one could say, even if uh, we do say David Melech wrote this in Ruach HaKodesh, however you want to approach the issue of the writing of Mizmorei Tilim, certainly this could be a description of the extraordinary mythological status that Yerushalayim attains in the aftermath of the story of Chizkiyahu. No one can conquer it. Um, Yerushalayim is, is, inspires awe and fear even from the surrounding kings because Yerushalayim is the special pr- protectorate of God. Now, this event is so extraordinary and so important not because um, it has given Am Yisrael the safe haven and because it's such a great event, but I would actually venture to say the very opposite. This event is important because it is a very, um, very destructive event in Am Yisrael's theological life. In fact, this attitude of Yerushalayim being inviolate, Yerushalayim being unable to be conquered, seems to make the people of Yerushalayim, certainly the inhabitants of Yerushalayim, feel um, safe, feel that they don't really have to make a great effort in order to maintain their city. And this finds expression in um, several different places in the Nevi'im. I'll mention, for example, and the more famous example, of course, is in Yirmiyahu himself, uh, in his prophecies. But before I get to Yirmiyahu, um, in Micha Paragimel, we have this 
prophecy um, against the people of Yerushalayim, in which Micha says, Bonetzion bidamim, Yerushalayim biavla, those who build Sion with blood and Yerushalayim with corruption, Rasheha bishochad yishpotu, Vichohanea bimchir yoru, Univieha bichesef yksomu. Right? All of the heads, they're taking bribes, they're taking payment in order to give, um, in order to, to, to teach Torah, uh, in, in order to give um, mishpat. The Nevi'im, the prophets, are only saying their nevu'ah in exchange for a high price. But then listen to the rest of the pasuk. I mean, uh, Paragimel pasuk yud aleph. Ve'al Hashem yisha'enu lemor. And they rely on God saying, Halo Hashem bekirbenu, lo tavo'aleinu ra'ah. Is not God in our midst? Nothing bad can ever happen to us. And Micha go, goes on and says, Lachain biglalchem, Tzion sadeti haresh, Yerushalayim iin tiyeh, the har habayit levamot yar. Yerushalayim will be, will be plowed up, uh, like, like a field, and Yerushalayim will lie in ruins, and also har habayit will become like a, like a forest, right? And it will be uninhabited. The idea, of course, is that Micha seems to be coming to the people in order to try to uproot from their hearts this erroneous attitude in which they feel that they don't have to, to, to behave in any real way in order to maintain their own uh, safety, their own um, uh, situation in Yerushalayim, because Halo Hashem God's in our midst. It does have to be said that, in fact, this coheres with an a general ancient Near Eastern attitude, which is that uh, the Mishkan, the place of a god, let's talk about uh, polygamous society, the place of the god's dwelling is um, under the special protection of the god because the god needs the place to live. And so why would he allow his own house to be destroyed? So the safest place, of course, uh, assuming we're talking about a powerful god that has the ability to protect his own space, the safest place, of course, is to live within close proximity to the temple. Now, um, it's not a far cry from this to the people's attitude when they say, God is in our midst. The people in Yerushalayim, nothing bad can happen to us. If we truly believe in God, if we truly um, um, maintain that God is is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, then we believe that Yerushalayim will never be destroyed, and therefore we're safe, and therefore we don't have to behave properly in order to maintain our safe place in Yerushalayim. Now, this idea perhaps finds its fullest expression in two prakim in Sefer Yermiyahu. One, and these are uh, two prakim that seem to, to tell the same story or s- certainly uh, seem to have very similar scenarios. In one story, in Perak Zion, Yermiyahu comes to the people and he says to them, don't rely on these false words, Lemor saying, Don't rely on false words saying, but it's the it's the, the house of God. It's the throne room of God. Nothing will ever happen here. Um, and this this uh, prophecy in Perak Zion seems to be picked up again in Perak Kavav when Yirmiyahu again comes to the people and says, don't rely on the fact that Yerushalayim is God's dwelling place. The only way that God won't destroy the Beit HaMikdash is if you make the Beit HaMikdash a place of worship of God, a place of furthering your own piety. If not, 
Don't forget, we have biblical precedents. God has destroyed his own place before very deliberately. That's the story of Shiloh, a story which picks up on the events of Shmuel Aleph, Perak Dalid. And here what Yirmiyahu seems to be saying is, is God does not need not Yerushalayim, not the Beit HaMikdash, not Shiloh and the Mishkan. He doesn't need a place to dwell. The the dwelling place is there for our pers- purposes, for Am Yisrael's benefit. And therefore, if we don't deserve it, God will, in, uh, in, in a flash, destroy it. Now, what happens in Yirmiyahu Perakavav actually is very interesting. Because when the people hear Yirmiyahu saying that, that Yerushalayim is going to be destroyed, they actually sentence him to death. Because, of course, they accuse him of blasphemy. If he does not believe that the Beit HaMikdash will remain standing, then presumably he does not believe in God's greatness. So ultimately what I want to say is is that this great event of saving Yerushalayim during the time of Sancharib, during the time of Chizkiyahu, turns out to be not so great. In fact, it was probably the event that most directly led to a certain erroneous attitude on the part of the people that led to the Galut. Um, the next historical event that I'd like to relate to is the um, the son of... Chizkiah, who is, of course, Menashe. Um, while Chizkiah was a very good king, Menashe is a very bad king. And, of course, he leaves a lasting impression because he rules for a very, very long He rules for 55 years. And 55 years, you think of uh, Medina Israel having had basically one leader since the very beginning. You can see how deeply affected the nation was uh, uh, by this extraordinarily long rule. Um, and of course, he introduces idolatry and he's uh, you know, a king that is spilling blood. He's a corrupt king religiously. He seems to be a corrupt king also socially. And um, and we have several different psukim which tell us, in fact, that the destruction is decreed because of him and the gzera of, of the korban, the, the decree of discru- destruction, is because of Menashe. Um, now, again, I mean, it seems to be that Menashe's influence permeates so deeply into the nation's psyche that there's no way to reform the people after these 55 years of bad rule. But I don't really want to talk so much about Menashe here, uh, nor do I want to speak about his son Amon, who only rules for two years. He's assassinated by his own servants. We get a sense that the kingdom is, over, is beginning to implode on its own. Who I really want to talk about is Menashe's grandson. Um, Menashe's son Amon, um, because he only rules two years, he leaves behind his son Yoshiahu, who is only eight years old when he begins to rule. Um, now, the account of Yoshiahu's rule in Malachim Bet, Perak of Bet, is not the fuller account. The fuller account actually appears in Divrei Amim Bet, uh, chapter 34, Perak Lamedalid. It goes on through chapter 35. Um, but what we really get a sense of in, in Yoshiao's rule is not only Yoshiao's own personal piety, but the way in which it comes together with external events in order to provide the people with renewed hope. Um, don't forget that the kingdom is very small. All we have left really is Machut Yudah. The ten tribes have gone into exile. They went into exile already in 722 BCE. This is almost 
A uh, hundred years later, Yoshia begins to rule in 639 BCE. That means that everybody alive, most of the people alive, have never had a united kingdom. The idea of the ten tribes is sort of this, you know, vague sort of idea. Um, but during the time of Yoshia, whose rule is during the time that the Assyrian Empire begins to wane. Assyria's very mighty empire is somewhat short-lived, less than 150 years. Ultimately, the fall of Ashur is dated to 612 BCE. That's, of course, when Nineveh falls. We generally date the fall of an empire to the fall of its capital. And it's very important to understand that Yoshiyahu, who's eight years old when he becomes king, he rules for 31 years. He, be- he becomes king in 639. He His rule starts to gain momentum alongside the decline of the Assyrian Empire. Now, what happens is, is the first, let's say, eight years of his reign, he is simply not ruling. His father's or perhaps grandfather's advisors are ruling the country, and that means that the rule is pretty much a continuation of Menashe and Ammon's rule. However, in his eighth year, that is when he's 16 years old, in 631 BCE, he begins to do tshuva. In his 12th year, he starts a reform. And in his 18th year, he does a bedek habayit. That means he begins to um, to fix up the Beit HaMikdash. That's the year also that he finds the famous Sefer Torah. Anyone who's interested in the story, it's a, it's a really fascinating story in the 34th and 35th chapter of Divrei Amim Bet. It also appears in Malchem Bet, but as I said, the fuller version is in Divrei Amim. What I want to, to point out, what I want to describe here, is that there are tremendous high hopes during Yoshiao's period. Aside or perhaps alongside the religious reform um, the and the beginning of the decline of the mighty Assyrian Empire, and of course it's the, the Babylonian Empire has not yet begun to assert its its uh, authority over uh, the over the Yerushalayim or the Eretz Israel area. What begins to happen also is that the For example in begin uh, to I mean, when gathering he mentions not just but also. Also, the tribes of Menashe and Ephraim. Chazal tells that Yirmiyahu actually went to uh, bring some of the exiles home. Um, and of course, what we also have a sense here is that uh, Yoshiahu's rule is um, is broadened geographically and begins to encroach also upon the northern kingdom. That is, he goes up to the Arei Menashe, he goes up to Arei Ephraim, he goes up to, all the way to Arei Naphtali, and um, his influence it becomes um, almost uh, uh, almost tantamount to uh, United Kingdom. Uh, Yoshiahu rules not just over the Judean kingdom, Kingdom, but also it appears over cities in the northern kingdom. And all of this occurs because Ashur is weak, weakening, it's beginning to pull back. Um, it feels as though Yoshiao's time period is a time period of great hope. The people must have thought that he was Mashiach. Uh, he was the one, perhaps, of whom Yeshayao spoke when Yeshayao offered comfort after the exile of the ten tribes. And all of this seems to be gathering momentum until, of course, in 608, which is um, which is uh, 31 years into his reign, when he's just 39 years old, 
Yoshiao dies. Um, I'm not going to get into the question of his death. You can read it in the Tanakh. It doesn't appear to be that there's a very strong theological or even uh, military reason for his death that is offered in the Tanakh. And, of course, we are told in Divrei Amim Bet, Perak Lamed Hei, Pasuk Kafei, Vayikonein Yirmiyahu al Yoshiahu. Yirmiyahu lamented, he, he wrote keynote about Yoshiahu, Vayamru kol hasarim vasarot bekinotehem al Yoshiahu ad hayom vayitnum lechok ha-Yisrael vayinam ketuvim al ha-kinote. And all the sarim and the, uh, all the sharim and the sharot are also um, saying keynote over Yoshiahu and um, they are written in the keynote and Rashi there says and several other of the um, of the Mepharshim there say that these keynote also uh, uh, enter into Megillat Echa that some of the keynote that Yirmiyahu said over Yoshiahu, Yoshiahu enter into Megillat Echa and this also we'll have to discuss uh, certainly when we get to Perak Dalid but I, I think that the idea here also is important to understand and that is that Yoshiahu is really the last hope he's the last hope before the Chorba and what happens after Yoshiahu is that after the brief reign of Yehoahaz, uh, his brother, who is Yoshiahu's son, Yehoiakim, takes over. Yehoiakim is a terrible king. He's uh, terrible, terribly corrupt, terribly irreligious. Um, and, of course, in the fourth year of Yehoiakim, Yehuda becomes a vassal state to Bavel, and the decline is very rapid from there. After Yehoiakim, we have Yehoiachin. Yehoiachin, of course, is the Galut, the Galut of Yehoiachin in the year 597. At that point, we have one final chance, and that is Sidkiyahu, who is a puppet king, or seems to be at least initially a puppet king, that is placed upon the throne by Bavel. He only rules nine years before Nebuchadnezzar, before he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar sends troops, and then we have the year and a half siege, and then of course Yerushalayim is destroyed. So it's a rapid decline from the time of Yoshiao's death until the Chorban. Um, there's a tremendous amount to say about Yehoiakim, about especially about about uh, the story in which Yirmiyahu sends a Megillah to the people, which presumably has very harsh things to say. The people become very scared. The people um, uh, are very upset by this Megillah. But when Yehoiakim hears the words of the Megillah and the, his uh, officers come and read it in front of him, he is not afraid. He does not rip his clothes. And instead, he unceremoniously rips the Megillah and burns it in the fireplace. Now Rashi there says that that Megillah is Megillat Echa. That the Megillah in fact, according to this view of Rashi, uh, is written as a prophecy in order to deter the king from his evil ways, in order to get the people to do tshuva by telling them what is about to happen. That also is a very important story. In in general I think that uh, uh, one should read Yirmiyahu Perak Lamed Vav in its entirety as a preparation for understanding the events which lead to uh, to the Chorban. It is important to note that the siege of Yerushalayim went on for one and a half years. During this time, uh, people did not leave or enter Yerushalayim unless they did so at the risk of their life and in secret. There was terrible famine, terrible thirst, plague in Yerushalayim. Uh, by the time the wall was breached on the 9th of Tammuz, Tammuz in 586 BCE, the population was greatly weakened. Many had already died. and Of course, the Babylonians went on a rampage. It took them until the 7th or uh, the 10th 
the seventh or the tenth of Av to begin to set fire to the city and the Beit Hamikdash. That means that during this month they were looting and and killing and destroying. Um, and of course, Tzidkiyahu and his men are captured. His sons are killed in front of him, and he himself is blinded and taken in chains down to Bavel. Um, many were sent. Many people were sent into exile. One can can imagine, and, and here I'm going to try to give you a sense of the people who are in the background of Megillat Echa, uh, one could imagine that the small remainder of people in the land, the She'erita Pleita, the people in Bavel as well, were shattered physically, emotionally, psychologically. They had suffered complete and total upheaval in their lives. The world was simply a wreck of shattered perspectives, families torn apart, many uh, dead, many injured, the majority exiled, their city and homes leveled, burned, and of course, perhaps most important of all for our purposes, their holy site desecrated and destroyed. Now, it is important to note, and I'm not going to have a chance to go into it today, but I will refer you to Yirmiyahu Prakim Mem Mem Aleph Mem Bet, and that is the story of Gedaliah ben Achikam. The spark of hope in all of this is that the Babylonians allow the She'erita Pleita, this remaining uh, group, to uh, reorganize them themselves in the hills north of Yerushalayim in their own autonomous community. Um, and this, this of course, is, is uh, the hopes are dashed because of a fellow Jew named Ishmael ben Netanyahu who comes and assassinates Gedalia. We fast the fast of Gedalia every, every year as a result of this. Now, at this point, the, the Jews are in grave danger because, of course, the uh, Gedalia is the government-appointed Babylonian the Jews at this time. And um, this event, the assassination of Gedalia, can only be interpreted by the Babylonians as uh, insurrection, the rejection of the leader that was appointed by them. And the Jews, of course, are in grave danger. When they recognize this, they request from Yermiao his advice. And at first, Yermiao he refuses to give it to them. Hesitant. He tells them, the after all, um, the well, you know, you never really to his listened to me um, And yet, after they um, convince him that I they will to listen to everything he says, advice. he does go and, uh, and, and try to get the word of God. And the word of God comes to Yermiao after ten days, thereby indicating the alienation between God and his people at this time. And he tells them, um, God tells them that they're be- being given a unique opportunity to prove once again that in fact now they um, they are faithful to God. In fact, God says to them, you can remain in Israel at this time despite the impending threat of the Babylonians. Demonstrate your faith in God and I promise you that I will rebuild you, I will restore your community, I will protect you and I will personally ensure your safety and the revival of your pa- past glories. All you have to do is trust God and remain in Israel despite the impending threat of the Babylonians. This is their final test. And of course, here they fail as well. Despite the Jews' promises to Yirmiyahu, as soon as he tells them this, they, they go down to Egypt. They refuse to obey the word of God once again. And Gedaliah's death, therefore, represents the end of the Jewish presence in the land of Israel. The Jews' rejection of the singular opportunity given to them by God, even in the immediate aftermath of the Chorban, to return to him and begin immediately the road to rejuvenation. Instead, they reject him once again, and they go down to Mitzrayim, and Yirmiyahu goes with them. Now, I'd like to return to the state of the Jewish people in the immediate aftermath of the Chorban, and with this, we'll conclude our shiur. We noted that the people were shattered physically, emotionally, psychologically. They had suffered 
um, complete and total upheaval in their lives. The world was a wreck of shattered perspectives in every plane, the social and economic plane, the physical plane. I want to talk a little bit about the, um, the theological upheaval. Their holy light has, their holy sight has been desecrated, destroyed. The people are left with painful theological questions such as, how could God destroy his Beit HaMikdash? Did God abandon his people? How could the idolatrous, evil Gentiles have been allowed to succeed and prosper while the Jews are punished by them? And perhaps the most poignant question of all, without the Davidic dynasty, the, the kings, the Kohanim, the Levi'im, the Beit HaMikdash, how can the Jews have a relationship with God? How can the Jewish nation reconcile with God? No more sacrifices, no more kapara, no more meeting place between God and man in the place in which heaven and earth meet, the Beit HaMikdash. All of this having been said, it remains to be seen that Echa is not a calculated, deliberate attempt to answer or even address these questions. Echa, in fact, is a book of, of, of suffering, a book of perhaps primal outrage, a book of anguish and grief. It is a book which is deep in meaning and rich in thought, but it's not about how the people perceive their pain logically. It illustrates instead a grieving process, a natural reaction to this, to tragedy. One theme that appears in Echa is the traumatized relationship between man and God. It's a background theme. There is no calculated attempt to answer the theological questions. Perhaps a little bit in Paragimel. We'll talk about that when we get there. But this is not an Eov-like book. It, there's just a general sense of the vast anguish that we that that emerges as a result of the traumatized relationship. That perhaps is the reason that Echa is missing historical events, names, dates. The overall theme, of course, is the destruction of Yerushalayim and the traumatized relationship between man and God that, that results from that. But Echa is really not about the Chorban. It's about suffering. It's about Am Yisrael suffering on both an individual and a collective level. Human suffering is the major theme of Echa. The the, the Jewish catastrophe that spans generations, that affects all Jews throughout the ages, and it's this that makes Echa such a powerful book. It's this which enables us to read Echa on Tisha B'Av every year and relate to it as a book that can ev- evoke such powerful contemporary emotions from us, because Echa is not simply about the Chorban. It has enormous contemporary relevance as the suffering, both as individuals, as human beings, and as a nation throughout history. And these are some of the um, these are some of the ideas that we'll be exploring as we progress throughout Echa. I give you a little bit of historical of a historical introduction. There's a lot more that needs to be said. We have not spoken, for example, about <clears throat> some of the alliances that the Jews try to make with the different nations. We will speak about some of those other historical ideas that emerge from different readings of different Prakim and Tanakh as we progress in our uh, in our next year. We will offer also a little bit of an introduction to poetry and how poetry plays a role in Migilat Echa. I hope you'll bear with me during these introductory shirim before we actually get to the text of Echa. It is very important to have a little bit of a background before we actually uh, read through Echa itself.